Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Our reading a while ago in James, and we know that scripture well, that we are called to be not just hearers of the Word, not just to come to church and listen to the preacher or to hear somebody or listen to our Bible reading program in our cars, not just to listen to the Word, but to be effectual doers of it. To be people that live the Word of God. You know, the one thing that separates a Christian who lives for God from everyone else is faith. The the Christian believes the gospel, knows the love of God, and they are responding to it by the way in which they live their lives. Faith is foundational to the Christian life. But there are different kinds of faith. There are different levels of faith. There is the intellectual level. That is the level in which I hold something to be true. I believe the moon landings took place. I I wasn't alive when they did, but I believe that they took place. There are people, and I have met those people, who do not believe the moon landings took place. They just believe it was all faked on some studio out in Nevada. And that those never took place. I believe that they took place. And I believe that there's evidence to support that. And I believe that. I hold that to be true. But I can tell you this morning that believing that the moon landings took place has very little to no impact on my daily life. It has no impact at all on my decision making on a daily basis. And you know... Many people talk about God and they say that they believe, but that belief has very little impact on their lives. That belief does not even come into play in their decision-making processes. And people at this level, while they may believe in God, they simply have very little desire to actually do what He says. To actually obey Him. So there is the intellectual level, but there's also, in faith, the involvement level. And that is that I hold something to be true, but that which I hold to be true, that which I believe in, does impact my daily life. It does impact the decisions that I make in any given moment during the day. I wear a ten and a half shoe. (laughs) That's just the truth. I, I accept that truth. And and I do not want to wear any other size. I don't want an 11. I don't want a 10. I don't want my shoe tight. I don't want it loose. And so it is something that I hold to be true that has at least an impact on my decisions when I go to the shoe store, right? 
I believe that a stop sign means stop. I remember one time my brother did not quite stop with my grandfather in the car. He kind of rolled up. He said, that didn't say roll up. It says to stop. And so I believe it to be stop. And I try to allow that to affect my decisions when I come up to a stop sign. Now, I believe in the Christ, in Christ Jesus as the Son of God, risen from the dead. And I believe that He's my Lord. And I believe that you think the same thing. I think that many of you, if not all of you, here this morning would say those very same words. Even so, unless our faith matters enough for our personal involvement and our personal devotion to it, it is of little good to our lives. We must act on what we believe or it means little to nothing. And I want us to think for just a moment about how to have a strong and living faith in our lives. And the first thing that we're going to have to do if we're going to have a strong and a living faith is we're going to have to move from theory to practice. I've had people at times tell me, you know, you need to do this as a preacher. They never have been a preacher. They've got a lot of theory. But there's a difference between theory and actually having done the job. I've talked to a lot of young students. I've, I've helped a lot of young uh, preaching preachers as they come out of school and stuff. And they have a lot of theory, but there's some practical things that you just can't teach in a classroom. But that you learn on the job. You learn in practice. So we have to move from theory uh, to practice. And in so doing, we're going to have to move from a dead faith... To a living one. Going back to the book of James that was read from just a few moments ago in James chapter 2. In verses 14 through 22, James talks about faith and works. The text that was read a moment ago about not being forgetful hearers but being effectual doers in chapter 1 is just setting the stage for what James is going to talk about in chapter 2 of faith and works. But he finishes that discourse in verse 22 when he says, For as faith without works is dead, or as the body, I'm sorry, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So he finishes there and says that a faith that doesn't do anything, a faith that doesn't work, and faith that doesn't show that it is something, is dead. Well, a dead body is useless. There's nothing that it's going to accomplish. An imperfect faith does nothing as well. A dead faith talks a good game, but a living faith walks and lives what it says it believes. And that's what we're to have in our lives. When we look at Hebrews chapter 11 and we see those men there in that chapter, we call it the hall of faith, right? And we look at all those men of great faith there. But as it introduces us to each of those men there in Hebrews chapter 11, it does so by saying... By faith. What? By faith Abraham offered. By faith Noah built. By faith Moses chose. By faith Abraham left. By faith. And then it always said that by faith those men did something. And it was the fact that they did those things because of their faith in God. Because of what God had said to them. Because of what God had commanded them to do. Because they did that. They were praised and honored by God there in that chapter. Faith obeys what it claims to believe. And that's what we see in Hebrews chapter 11. In John chapter 3 and verse 36, John writes for us and he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. 
You know, when we look at this verse, we see something. We see Jesus putting opposites up there. And the opposite, according to Jesus, of belief in Him, the opposite of that is disobedience. And so when we look at John and we look at what he writes there and what he, in fact, writes in other places uh, within his book, we see that within the definition of faith, within the definition of belief, you cannot leave out the idea and the necessity of obedience to God. Obedience to that which we claim to obey. The idea of faith which will not obey is never contemplated on any page of the Bible. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Well, what means something, Paul? But faith. Is that all, Paul? No. Working in love. He says that's what matters. That's what means something. That's how we move from a dead faith to a living one. But as we continue to think about moving from theory to practice, we need to also understand that we must move from being spectators to being participants. Now, I assume most of you are Alabama fans. I'm sorry. That's, that's no way to get a job, is it? Now, I'm sure that you like to watch the ball games, right? And, and we do, but we have to understand and we have to believe that when it comes to God and when it comes to faith and when it comes to our lives, we cannot sit in the stands and watch others live faithfully. We have to be on the field. That's where God calls us to be. We have to move from being spectators of everybody else doing what they should and be participants, be fellow laborers with them and fellow laborers with Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to be as children of God. To be on that field it is the process of doing more than simply wearing the name Jesus Christ or the name Christian. It is to be a laborer with Him. Living for God means I am busy producing fruit and working for His cause. Carrying my cross, I am, in other words, engaged. John chapter 15. Jesus talking there on the last night before He went to the cross. He says, by this is my Father glorified. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now he's talking there about the vines, the vines and the branches, the, the vine and the branches. We're to be connected to the vine. He's the vine. And we're the branches and we're to bear much fruit. Now I think a lot of times when we, we hear that term bearing fruit, we think about, you know, bringing the lost in. And yes, there is an aspect where the Bible talks about that and uses that terminology with that. But in this particular case where Jesus is talking in John chapter 15, he's not talking about us bringing in the lost. They're not the fruit. There would be other branches. He's talking about there what we are inside. That we're doing something and changing and we're being and we're living what he commands us to live and do. And as a result, we're changing from the inside out. We are being, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the changing of who we are, by how we live. That's what Jesus is telling us there, that we are to change and be more like the vine that sustains us, that we are to be more like Him. Well, once we move from theory to practice, then we must move from beholding the cross to living worthy of it. 
You know, many people speak about the cross of Jesus Christ, but they do not let that cross change them. They do not let that cross have a profound effect on their lives. They do not live in a way that is worthy of that cross. And I know our first instinct is to say, well, I'm not, I'm not worthy of that. And, and I understand that. And sometimes, that, you know, I think we say that and, and, and it's true in one sense. And sometimes I've heard people say it and it was an excuse to not live right. But I want us to understand that we, while mankind did not deserve what the Father gave and Jesus did on the cross, it is clear New Testament teaching that we are to and we can live worthy of the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1. Turn your Bibles there. We're going we're gonna to stay there for a little bit. I'm going to jump to a couple of others, but I want you to remain there at Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 9, Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual understanding, spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Also in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul again says, Therefore I, prisoner, I the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called. Again, Paul again in 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 2, in verses 11 and 12, says, We were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, we can be worthy. We can walk worthy of what has been done for us, or Paul could not command us to do that which is impossible. You know, what does it mean, though, if we're going to say that, if we're going to talk about that, what does it mean, though, to walk worthy of the cross of Jesus? Well, I think Paul defines that back in our Colossians 1 text that I asked you to stay at. There in verses 9 through 12, I think he tells us exactly how to walk in a manner that is worthy of the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he tells us, being filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowing God's Word is going to tell us it is that place in which we find how to walk worthy. Is in the knowledge of God's Word that He has given to us. He reiterates that in verse 10 when he says, increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, as we walk this life, as we're trying to have this living faith, then we're going to have to be increasing, continually studying God's Word and learning more from it. That's the wonderful thing about God's Word. It's, it's so deep and it's, there's so much there that you could study it your entire life. You could read the whole thing every single day. And when you die 110 years old, you're going to still be learning stuff. One of my instructors at Heritage, David Underwood, many years ago, he said he'd been teaching Acts for 25 years and that he read the entire book every year before he began teaching the class that semester. And he said, every time I've ever read the book, I've learned something that deeper or new that I didn't see before. God's Word is just that wonderful. 
We need to continue to increase in it. But he goes on to tell us how to walk worthy. He says in verse 10, to please him in all respects, to do what he says, to live as he has said to live, to bear fruit, as we talked about before, in every good work, to be doing those things that are good. Good in the Bible is God. When they came up and said, good teacher to Jesus, Jesus said, no one's good but God. So we talk about good works, we're talking about God works. Things God wants us to be doing. The kind of people that He wants us to be. And so that we are bearing fruit in those good works. Verse 11, He says that we are to attain to all steadfastness and patience. Verse 12, joyously giving thanks to the Father. All of those things are describing for us what it means to walk worthy of the cross of Jesus Christ. Living worthy of that cross means I must say no to myself, to my wants, to my desires, to my pleasures. The cross and the will of the one who died there is what I must live for. The cross of Jesus Christ, if it's about anything, it's about giving everything. Jesus gave all on the cross. I want you to notice there in Colossians chapter 1 again, how many times Paul uses that word all, or he uses the word everything. Because it is an all or nothing proposition. Jesus doesn't want just little bits of you or your scraps when you're done doing everything that you want to do. He wants you. We look at the Old Testament and we see that law of giving the first fruits. The very first of the very best that you had was to be given to God. In fact, Malachi condemns the Israelites. God condemns the Israelites through Malachi for giving the sick and the lame instead of giving the best. Folks, we're to give the best of ourselves because God gave the best of Himself. According to John 3.16. Live worthy of that cross requires that I, I give all myself to that cross. And like Christ died, I must die every day with Christ to self and to sin. He died to destroy sin through His blood shed and that sacrifice. And I die every day to self so that I do not commit the sins that put Him there to begin with. Because sin is selfish, always. Sin is selfish because it doesn't consider God and what it does to Him. There were things as a teenager that I shouldn't have done. I did and I shouldn't have done. But there were things I didn't do because I didn't want to hurt my parents because I knew they didn't want me to do it. I took them into consideration on some things. And let me tell you what, folks. When we're thinking about some things in our lives, we need to take into consideration what it's going to do to the Father in heaven. And how it's going to hurt him. Do not think for one minute that your sin doesn't hurt. It hurts like a nail being driven in your wrist. Having your back beat with a whip. Hanging on a cross for six hours. That's what it hurts like. That's what it hurt like for Jesus. That's what Nathan's sins did to him. And that's what your sins did to him too. So we need to consider that every day. Put aside self. What I, you know, I may want to do that. And, and, and sin always has that in it. I want to do it. Just because I want to do it doesn't mean I need to do it. It doesn't mean that the Father's not going to be hurt by me doing it. And I need to consider that as I try to walk worthy. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, Paul says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we may no longer be slaves to sin. I do not want to be a slave to the devil. 
You can think about bad slave masters. <laughs> and, and, and there's certainly, you can see that in history. But let me tell you what, there's no worse slave master than the devil, than Satan himself. He wants to destroy you. He wants to hurt you. He wants to make your life a complete and total misery. And if you let him, he will. You can crucify that. You can put that to death. And you can be a slave to righteousness instead. That which will only lift you up. Living worthy of the cross as well means I must sacrifice myself for others. That their benefit is more important than my comfort. Romans chapter 12 Beginning with verse 10, Paul says this, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligent, fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. You know, such sacrifice for others, preferring others. It is, a, it is an others before self mentality. And my friends, that is on nearly every page in the New Testament. Putting others before self. And there is probably not a greater challenge that I have and that you have in your life than doing that. Than putting someone else before what I want. Putting someone else's needs before my wants is very difficult. It's very hard. But it's what we're called to be. Such sacrifice for others, that preferring others, that others before self mentality will lead us to tell others about Christ. I will put aside my fears so that you have a chance at heaven. It will lead us to help others that are in need. It will lead us to pray and to help our enemies as Jesus commands us to do. It will lead us to pray for our friends as well. To give time and resource to help others. To ultimately, as Galatians chapter 6 says, to do good unto all men, especially those right here. In the household of faith. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 9. In fact. I know we often talk about Philippians as the book on joy. It's really more about others before self. It is how to find joy. And the way you find joy is others before self. Putting others before yourself. There is very little joy found in selfish people. They can't have it because they never can get enough. Joy is found in helping other people. And that's what that whole book, from chapter 1 through 4, it's, that's exactly what it's talking about. But chapter 2, it's kind of the pinnacle. Because Paul says, have this mind in you that was also in who? Christ. In other words, you need to think like this. Have this mind in you. Think like this. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ, who did not regard being equal to God, a thing to be held on to, See, it's selfish. I just want to hang on to that. Boy, if I had the power of God, I might want to just hang on to that, right? I don't want to let that go. He did not regard it something to be held on to, but emptied himself of it so that he might become a man, a servant. And not just that, but that he would even die, even the death of the cross. It says, because of this, his name is above everybody else. And that at His name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Heaven and earth. That's what it caused. But it was another's before self mentality that Jesus had when He left heaven. He put you, He put me first. I, I, I wouldn't want to left heaven and come back here. Or to come here. 
But he left heaven because you needed him to leave heaven. I needed him to leave heaven. And he put me first. He put you first. The third thing that we have to always remember as we try to walk worthy or live worthy of the cross of Jesus, it means that I must go where he leads whether I want to go there or not. I mentioned this morning Psalm 23 in the valley of, of deep darkness. And, and I, I've seen these valleys. I've been in that area of, of, of Israel where these valleys are at. And sheep will never go in them. They're very narrow. And if the sun's not directly overhead, they're dark. And, that, and when David, as the shepherd, says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's talking about the, the, the literal translation is the valley of deep darkness. That's what he's talking about. No sheep's going to go in there of his own volition. The sheep will only go in there if you trust the shepherd. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so there's going to be times where we're going to have to go places that we don't want to go and do things we don't want to necessarily do, but we're going to have to do them because that's where the shepherd is leading us. And on the other side of that is where the green grass and the still water is that restores our souls. But you can't get to it if you don't cross through it. There are things that I'm called to do I, don't, I do not necessarily enjoy. I'm still called to do them for Christ. And there are sermons that I, <laughs> I don't enjoy having to preach. There are sermons that I, I'll sit on the front seat before I know I'm fixing to get up and I, I'll have to say a prayer. I, my stomach is churning. I, my stomach hurts. I'm nervous. I know that when I preach that sermon that it's going to... Create some things, create some issues possibly. And, and you know, it, I don't want to preach those sermons. But I'm called to proclaim the whole counsel of God. So I do. I preach in season and out of season, as one old preacher said, when it's, when it's wanted and when it's not, right? You preach those sermons because you're called to do that and you do it because Jesus wants you to. Christ did as the Father told Him, even when it was the cross. And and I can't imagine anything in this life harder than that night in dark Gethsemane when Jesus is praying. Let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. Is there any other way? But then He says it. Not my will, but yours be done. Others, God in this case, before self. He set that example for us. He showed us that we were going to have to do that. Jesus doesn't ask you and me to do one thing. He doesn't do himself. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 says that Jesus both began to do and to teach. He didn't just say it. He did it. He lived it. And he asked us to live it as well if we're going to wear his name. Christ did as the Father told him. Each of us has a part in the ministry of Christ to pursue. Each has a job and we cannot pass it off to others. And we must do our part in the body of Christ just as He did His part on the cross to provide it for us. We are a part of this body and we function in a way similar to the parts of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses that illustration of a body. And there are people that have diseases today that cause their body through... Uh, 
nerve, nervous issues that cause their parts of their body to do things that they're not in control of and it, and it creates problems. Or if a part of the body is paralyzed, it's going to create problems. If there's a part of the body that cannot function in the way that it's supposed to function, it causes problems for the body as a whole. And folks, we are called to be something in the Lord's body. Not everybody's a mouth, not everybody's nine. You know, Paul makes that clear. But we all have a purpose. And we all have a place and we all have a role to play. And it's incumbent upon us to do it. If we are to walk worthy, if we are to live a living faith. You know, living a a life of faith in God is always remembering what God has done and living in a manner that would please Him. In other words, that would be worthy. Living a life of faith means that I must grow beyond living for self. Living faithfully to God means I must put God's priorities before my own. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. We sing the song, Seek ye first the kingdom and His righteousness. First. Not second, not later. It's number one. It's what I consider first and foremost of all. If I am to expect God to give me the things, it says, and all these things shall be added unto you. If I expect God to give me the things that that chapter says God will provide, then I have to do my part too. Living for self, that's going to mean that I'm holding something back from God. I'm keeping something for me. And I forget that all that I am is God's. And it's not mine to begin with. And that's just stealing from Him. That's what Malachi says. Living for God means that my thoughts, plans, goals, activities are centered on His will and not mine. That's Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17 where Paul says, Let all that you do in word or deed be done in the name of Jesus Christ according to His will, in other words. A book was written about uh, the Dark Ages and how that when they began to uh, teach the Bible to the Franks, the barbarians, that they began to come to Jesus or they began to obey the gospel in droves. But they had been fighting all of their lives and for generations. They knew nothing but just savage and brutal warfare day in and day out. So when they came and, you know, it's the gospel and it's it's about living a life of peace. They struggled with that. And so it's written in the history books that when they were baptized, that many of them would go into the go into baptism and they would keep their hand out with their battle axe in it out of the water. And they would come back later and say, this hand was never baptized so they could whack somebody with it, right? That's interesting, isn't it? This hand was never baptized. Well, we know that you're either only baptized or uh, you're not baptized at all. There's no such thing as, as baptizing everything but the hand or everything but the foot. But listening to some, I wonder if their tongues were ever baptized. With gossip, cursing, criticism, you wonder if their tongues were baptized. The selfish thinking of some makes you wonder if their minds were baptized. What some people watch on their televisions and on their computer screens makes you wonder if their eyes were ever baptized. What some people do with their money makes you wonder if their wallets were baptized. 
How some people treat others makes you wonder if their heart was ever baptized. You know, a song has no value unless it's sung. And a Christian who does not actively live his faith on a daily basis is worthless to the Lord. Can God count on you today? Can He count on you to move from a dead faith to a living one, to be participants in the work of the Lord and not just spectators of others doing what God would have them to do? Can He count on you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the cross of Christ? Let me tell you, active faith is seen clearly in a Christian's life. When we look there at Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, I want you to note that Jesus has just finished the Beatitudes. And He doesn't say, I want you to try to be light. I want you to try to be salt. That's not what He says. He's basically saying that if you are these things, the Beatitudes, merciful, peacekeepers, willing to sacrifice, poor in spirit, hunger and thirst for righteousness, meek, If you're those things, he says, you are, you are light. You are a city set on a hill. You cannot be hid. Let me tell you what, you're living according to the Beatitudes. You're living according to what Christ has said in his word. I promise you, you will not be hidden. People will see it. And they will not be able to help themselves, but ask, what's the deal with you? Some may ask that very derogatory. Some may ask it because they really want to know. And those are the ones we want to say, what you see is not me. It's Jesus who changed me. And I want him to change you too. We can make a difference by having a living faith, folks. I had a preacher friend. i got to be careful. There's a lot of steps here. I had a preacher friend one time, and he went to a man's place of business, and he said, you know, I think you'd be a great addition to our congregation. I'd love to sit down and study the Bible with you and see if that's something that you would choose to do. The man said, you know, I I really like you, preacher, and and I appreciate you coming, and and I'm, I'm flattered that you say those things about me. He said, but here's what I'll do. He said, I'm going to come five Sundays to your church. And I'm going to listen to five of your sermons. I'm going to come to your services. And he says, and if you can convince me to be a Christian in five Sundays, then I'll become one. Folks, let me tell you what. People are doing that. They're walking through these doors. And sometimes they're not giving us five. Sometimes they're giving us one. We better open our eyes and see them. So he came. Came first Sunday, second Sunday, third Sunday, fourth Sunday. Fifth Sunday, the invitation song started and he stepped out in the aisle and he walked down and he sat down and the preacher sat down beside him and when he sat down beside him, he said, I want to be baptized into Christ. And the preacher honored that request. But the preacher said, I just, I was wondering, you know, I was wondering which one of my sermons was a good one, right? So he went down on Tuesday that week and he said, uh, I don't mean to brag. He said, I don't want to toot my own horn or anything. But he said, which one of my sermons convinced you to be a Christian? He said, preacher, I don't want to burst your bubble. None of them. That's not what a preacher wants to hear. We think all our sermons are great. He says, none of them. He said, I was walking out of the church building on the fourth Sunday. 
And, and I know this church. I've been to this congregation many times. And, and there's a there, there's a concrete set of steps that go down to the parking lot. And he said, I came out that day and there was a little old lady standing there. And she had her cane in one hand and her Bible on the other there at the top of the steps. And people were just kind of ebbing around her. I knew this lady personally. He said, I went up to her and I said, can I help you? She said, would you please? He said, I took her arm and I took her down the steps. He said, we got to the bottom and she was like this. He said, she looked me right in the eyes and said, are you a Christian? I hope you are. It's the greatest thing in the world. He said, I was stunned. He said, I I didn't even say anything back. He said, she just said it, turned and walked off. And went off into the parking lot, got in her car and drove off. He said, I'm still just standing there. Stunned. He said, and all that week I kept hearing her voice saying, are you a Christian? I hope you are. It's the greatest thing in the world. He said, Saturday I I decided that I wanted what I saw in her eyes. I wanted what I heard in her voice. I wanted what was on her face. She had 82 years to prove her point. And I wanted it. Living faith shows And it attracts people. And he became a child of God. Because of what was on her face and in her eyes and in her voice. By just asking him a simple question. Are you a Christian? And then telling him why he needed to be one. It's the greatest thing in the world. May God help us. Have in our eyes. And on our face and in our voices. Those things that draw people to Christ. So that we may truly be cities on a hill. We may truly be light and salt to a world that desperately needs it. This morning, if you're not a child of God, I can't say it any better than Sister Harville. It's the greatest thing in the world. And you're missing out. We serve the greatest Savior. We serve the most loving God. And you don't have to miss another day. We don't expect you to come for us. We expect you to come for them. God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Come believing in Jesus. Repenting of your sins. Choosing to change your life. To have a living faith like He wants you to have. To move toward Him. To confess Him as the Son of God. And be buried in baptism. Having your sins washed away there. To rise. To walk a new life. The greatest life there is. And that is the Christian life. And to live it faithfully unto death. And to know that heaven will be your home. This morning, if you are a child of God, maybe you haven't had a living faith. Maybe you've been a spectator. Maybe it's been more theory than practice. Then make the decision today to have a living faith and begin. Those things that you need to repent of and those things that you need to confess to God, you do that. And 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says that He is faithful and just to forgive you of those things. If we can assist you, if we can encourage you, if we can help you, Move toward the greatest thing in this world, and that is life in Christ. We hope and pray that you'll let us this morning as we stand and as we sing.